Okay, as is the custom, we will open it up to anything for this morning, open it up to anything in general, and then we can go to Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So anything from this morning. Okay. There's some Polaroids there, Lee. Oh, yes. That is a great question. I'm not entirely sure. I, I didn't come prepared to answer that. Wonderful question. I will, I will, instead of making something up, I will try to get back. Basically, we got to read through that. The way we get the time is we know when the feasts occur. So like in John's gospel, there's three Passovers. There's an unnamed feast of the Jews, which could be a Passover. If it's a Passover, then John's gospel covers three or four years. I'd have to read through those 10 chapters and look for year markers of where we're at. Um, we know that traveling by foot You've got a couple weeks or a month or more traveling from Galilee to, to, to Jerusalem. But I don't, I don't know how much time that covers. That's a great question. Excellent question. By the way, did any of you guys, I have talked to at least three people who said they struggled to hear the sort of the punchline. It's not really the punchline, but the, the, the final line in my conversation with the unnamed professor from the unnamed um, Methodist school. Anyone here, everyone catch that or anyone want me to repeat that final line? Okay. But basically, I'm sitting down having lunch. Um, this guy's fully postmodern, fully bought into that stuff. And, um, and we're talking, and, and that's when I said to him, you know, it's got to be a little... We talked a little bit about Wesley and the, and the Methodist roots, and I said, surely you've got to recognize that I'm standing far more than you and your school, far, far more, in a Wesleyan tradition, like the theology I hold to, my views on marriage, my views on sexuality, my views on the Bible, my views on sin, my views on judgment, my views on the exclusivity of the gospel, are really pretty much right in keeping. Like, Wesley would be very comfortable with that, and he wouldn't recognize you. And he said, fair enough. <laughs> I said, okay. It's really, well, it's really hard to deny that, right? Um, I said, and surely you've got to be at least a little suspicious that after, you know, say 1900 years of the church pretty much holding the same view on all these issues, just at the same time that the culture goes, oh, hey, all of a sudden you go, oh, we totally misunderstood this, and you follow suit, like you're right lock and step with the culture. Surely you're intelligent, you've got to have a little bit of suspicion of that. And he said, yeah, fair enough. And then he said, but here's, here's my challenge for you. And I got ready for this, this is going to be heavy-duty, hardcore. You guys teach people that there's certainty. I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, uh, and I said, uh, no, but where he's coming from, what he means is, is that we know there is no such thing as certainty because we're fully relativistically postmodern. And therefore, what you're offering people is a mirage, an illusion. You promise people certainty on things they can't be certain about. That's what, that's what he's meaning to say. But just the way he said it, I mean, I really, pardon me, I want to go out and get a shirt and put like Martinsville Community Church where we teach people certainty in the Bible and then put his name in the quotation marks under it. I think that'd be, fan <laughs> I think that'd be fantastic and send him a copy of the shirt. That'd be great. Um, anyway, no? Sorry, no, you don't think I should do that? Anna, sorry. Okay. What? Well, no, and it's sad though because Smart guy, really good at tearing things apart. At the end of the day, there's not much in its place. Did any of you guys, Wendell, you went to the symposium over at Simpson, right? I think you asked him, I think it was you who asked him, what's your hope in your salvation? What was the answer? I don't know. 
There was no confidence, there's no certainty, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, when we did a symposium with four different people, and, and the irony, of course, was the guy from Simpson was the next most orthodox person there. There is no, because the, the Church of Christ lady was oh, yeah. crazy off the wall. And, um, I mean. The only, the only doctrinal stances that the Church of Christ had ever taken. <laughs> anyway, but I mean, but there's some churches of Christ that are okay. This lady was out there. Like, she was just like. She went into left field and just kept running, you know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, really, really. Yeah, and, and then there was the, the Catholic guy who was bending over backwards trying to pretend he wasn't Catholic. Um, no, no, really, we're nice and we're loving. We're, we're really hip. I mean, he was a nice guy. But the Simpson guy was honestly the most next guy. And after the debate, and it wasn't really a debate, it was a symposium, I was trying to talk to him about the issue, um, and I used the theological term with him because he'd understand it, but what theologians call imputation, which means the doctrine of how, on what basis, when, the, the understanding, how is it that Christ's righteousness becomes my righteousness? And how is it that my sin becomes his sinfulness? Well, the, the term for that transaction is imputation. It's imputed. It's, it's a... It's a uh, it's a calculating term. It's a bookkeeping term. When things go down in one column and it moves columns, it, it's imputed. My sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to me. And he understood. And I said, what I'm trying to get at is imputation. How do you, how do you, what, what do you believe about imputation? Yeah, I don't know. I said, whoa. You don't know how you receive the benefits of Christ's death. That's sad. Anyway. Um... And of course, there are charges. We're hopelessly up naive and pretending to have certainty and things we can't have certainty about. And my point is, if you can't be certain about the Bible, then throw it away. Luke, you can't make sense of Luke's prologue. He's writing for certainty. If certainty is just an illusion, it's an impossibility. I don't see how you can hold on to this claim you like this. I could get, yeah, that's nonsense, and throw it away. And I can get submitting to it and obeying it. What I can't understand is a sort of halfway house that people set up of well, it doesn't really mean that, but we still find valuable, useful life lessons out of it. Anyway, sorry, that was, that was my story about my lunch over in Indianola. Um, any other questions about this morning? I've ranted on about postmodern all that fun stuff for a bit, but sorry. Nope. Dave, you got anything? Yes. That, that, yeah, no, that, I was talking to Natalie, and I said, you know, like, you ever watch those, like, kung fu movies, and they've got, like, this, like, one-touch move that sort of, you know, people fall over and pass out, or the Vulcan, you know, like, Star Trek with the Vulcan, there's, when you deal with relativists, there's one point, if you can just find the point and press, it generally, well, it should collapse the whole thing, and that is, for all of their uncertainty, they're very, very certain that they're uncertain. In other words, this professor doesn't treat his own personal uncertainty as though it's just limited to him. His charge to me is, how dare you pretend to be certain when we all know you can't know anything? To which I want to say, you sure that you know that we can't know? <laughs> you seem pretty darn certain about the fact that we can't know anything. You get, get what I'm saying? That? In other words... There is one certainty in that system, and it's the certainty they can't know anything. And that's where you got to press and say, how do you know that we can't know things? I mean, if you're really consistent, you just say, I, I'm not sure, but I think perhaps we can't know anything. Maybe. Like, that would be consistent, right? A lack of certainty. Anyway, sorry. 
Um, and that's what you've got to sort of, that's what you've got to press at, um, is the, the internal inconsistency of being certain of uncertainty. Um, anyway. Anything else? Yes, Linda. It, oh, no, no, yeah. No, this, this goes back all the way to the garden. The attacks, on, the attacks on the Bible are nothing new. What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say? Can you be certain he said that? Yep. Did God really say? It's nothing new under the sun. Just takes, it takes very different formulations. But at the end of the day, it's questioning, can we be certain of what is said? Um, can we be certain of this book? And whether it's enough. And whether it's enough. Because the- Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a term. The when the Israelites committed idolatry, it seems, as best as we can understand it, it's not that they were. Now we know they were forsaking God because God makes it clear um, to to leave Him is to forsake Him. But the Israelites didn't view themselves as forsaking Yahweh. They were adding in other gods as well. The term for that is henotheism. H-e-n-o theism. Henotheism, and it's just basically the belief in one great big supreme God, but other gods. And so the notion wasn't, hey, we stopped believing in Yahweh. Rather, it's, you know, we really need some rain. We haven't had any rain for a while. Um, and uh, Ashtaroth uh, makes it rain. So if we go offer some offerings to Ashtaroth, we might get some rain. We need some kids. Let's, uh, let's go up on the high hill and you know, participate in some fertility rituals or whatever. And, um, and so it's they're adding that set of stuff in. Is, is, is God enough? Is his word enough? Or do I need the help of these other deities as well? Um, that's Zeb's point, indeed. Um, but did you, the other question, did you get that point in, in Second Peter? Turn to Second Peter, because I just want you to grasp how monumentally jaw-dropping of a statement this is about the authority of Scripture. Um, and I know that different translations bring it out differently. And I'd had a chance to study this in Greek. And so when I um, was reading through and I first came across the ESV, the first passage I went to was right here to see how they translated it. And then in there, I was like, you had me at Second Peter 1.19. You know, um, oh, come on. You, uh, Jerry Maguire reference is too much. You're judging me for that. Okay, sorry. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, Second Second Peter one, and so again, monumental statement. So Peter is is what he's trying to do is the flow of the argument. He is bolstering or offering support for why the testimony he's giving in this letter is trustworthy, because he's just said, "I'm writing this again so that after I depart, I know these wolves are going to rise up. They're going to try to lead you astray, and I'm leaving this document behind so that even after I die, you can go to it and remind yourself of the truth." That's that's what Peter's writing for. So pick it up in verse 15. I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So that's why I'm writing. And then he gives the warrant or the, the ground for why his testimony is trustworthy. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now, some translations would make it sound as though Peter's experience adds certainty to Scripture. I don't, I don't think that's the right reading, right understanding. And some of the translations can go both ways. Like, it could mean that, it could mean something else. But do, do you get what Peter's saying? And I'm, I'm just, I hate saying, take my word for it. Those of you in my Greek class will eventually be able to see what I'm saying here. Um, we, had, we had almost a dozen or more people show up for Greek. It was pretty cool. Um, but let me, yeah. Any, anyone got an anyone's translation say anything significantly different there at point at verse nineteen? Yeah, yeah, which would almost make it seem like Peter's experience is now made more sure. The scriptures, which is not what it's saying. Literally, the Greek is, but, and that's the key concept. It's adversative. In contrast to my experience, we have the made more sure word which is why the NAS translates it that way. That's literally the Greek construction. We have the having been made more sure word. But the concept is a contrast. On the one hand is my experience. On the other hand is the having been made more sure word. That, that's what's going on there. Um, let's see, New King James does it how? Have we got the New King James? I've got it on my phone somewhere. Confirmed again, seeming to add the notion that Peter's experience is confirming, cooperating with the testimony. I don't think that's what's going on. Um, let's see what the NIV has to say. We also, at least they have the adversative notion that it's contrasting. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. So here, NIV says, like, on the one hand, I got my experience, we also have this other thing too. Yep. Yep. It says, uh, moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable I like it. I like it. Interesting. I have, I'm just reading a quote. We have something more, something more sure, the prophetic word. My ESV says it right here. ESV is constantly getting minor updates. <laughs> My, my digital, my, no, you have the more up-to-date. My digital ESV says what yours says. Okay. Anyway. Okay. And think about, okay, let me, let me, let me give you, let me give you another, since I don't want your, your faith in this to rest on one passage, which is, which is quoted and translated differently. You think of the story of um, Jesus tells of the rich man of Lazarus, right? They both die, and the rich man goes to Hades, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. And first, the rich man wants Lazarus to come and minister to him. He still seems to think he's in charge. And no, no, the divide's too great. Okay, then I have three brothers, the rich man says, who are still alive. Um, send Lazarus to go warn them. And Abraham's response is, let them heed the scriptures. No, no, Father Abraham, but if someone returns from the dead, then they will believe. What does Abraham say? If they won't listen to the scriptures, either they believe that someone rises from the dead. Your experience, witnessing a legitimate miracle and someone rising from the dead adds zero credibility and persuasive power to the scriptures. That's what Abraham is saying. And that's what Jesus is having Abraham say. 
If they don't listen to the scriptures, neither will they believe if someone is raised from the dead. So the scriptures and miraculous resurrections is just as powerful as the scripture. Yeah, and this, this, this is where, again, the sovereignty of God and all that stuff ties in, because, yeah, if, if deciding to believe is simply a work of human will and is simply a work that God's hands off because he's a gentleman and he leaves people alone and you get to decide and do what you want, that type of reasoning makes no sense, what Abraham just said. That type of reasoning makes perfect sense if faith is a gift of God. If faith is a gift of God, no amount of witnessing of miracles will bring, make anyone believe, Right? If faith is something you do all by yourself, God, he's a gentleman, hands off, he's going to leave you be, he's going to let you make a free choice, that type of reasoning makes no sense. Then bring on the miracles, bring on the, um, bring on the confirmation. But if faith is something the Spirit... That, in a moment, in a moment, Davey, hold on. Let me just finish my sentence. Um, if faith is a gift of God, then you can make sense how we, and if it's, a, and as you were saying, it's a, it's a work of the Spirit, then it, it needs no additional support and it can't be helped by any additional support. David Pendris. So, <laughs> this guy pushes back. I love it. Yes, go, go, go. Yes. 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 David Pendris brings up an excellent, excellent observation. Um, and well done. I've just said that Jesus taught that seeing miracles doesn't make anyone believe. And yet, Jesus said, do you know where he said it? Can we look it up? Can we actually just find it? Um, just look up Sodom in the Gospels. It won't be in many places. Um, Jesus said, let's, uh, rather than paraphrasing what Jesus said, I... I Matthew 11, excellent. Matthew 11. Turn to Matthew 11. What part of Matthew 11? Starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more, par- more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Um, and what Jesus is speaking about here is using a category called middle knowledge. Um, middle knowledge is what philosophers use to describe knowledge of what might have been or might be, or subjunctive knowledge, if you want the grammatical category. So Jesus is not telling us what they did, but what they would have done had things been different. And it sure sounds like, to, to credit David's point, that Jesus is saying, hey, if they'd seen these miracles, they would have repented. Um, now, 
That's, that's the challenge. I would suggest Jesus is primarily using hyperbole. Um, he's a way of condemning them. The point is none of the people he noted did repent. But because these people had more witness and more evidence and more testimony, they're more worthy of judgment. I'm just going to take that. Okay, go, go to the example of Abraham and Lazarus because I want you to see I'm not just saying it, that this is actually taught. Abraham and Lazarus is, oh dear, I'm referencing all sorts of things. I don't know where they are. See, my synoptics are weak. I, I don't know where things are. In the, I don't know which gospel it's in. I want to say it's Luke. Yeah, it's Luke 16. Okay. The book I'm teaching, Luke 16. <laughs> Somewhere in that 1100. We won't get there for a year and a half. A year and a half from now. A year and a half from now, we'll be, we'll be rocking this passage. Okay. Um, and, and I want you to notice what it follows upon the heels of. Um, Jesus has just rebuked the Pharisees for changing the law and its authority. They don't submit themselves to the law and the prophets. Verse 18, he says to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman from her husband commits adultery. Right into, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and his gates was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed, and what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you might not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers." So that they may warn, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of judgment. Now, pause. Note that that Abraham and the rich man's goal, the conflict between Abraham and the rich man, is not in the goal. The first example, it was send him to give me some water. No, that can't happen. Their next conflict occurs not over the goal, but the means of achieving the goal. So Abraham said, verse twenty-nine. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then, as Abraham expresses his evangelistic strategy, the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Dave, that's, that's where I'm getting that in a lot of passages is where I'm getting my notion that you can't add to the authority of the Bible. So my, I'll look into this more, because fair enough, I totally get your point about, it sure looks like Jesus is saying, these people would have believed if they'd seen signs. And then I'm saying, science doesn't make anybody believe. Um, Philip, Nathaniel, Nathaniel. Yes. Yes. Well, go to, go to John 2. Go to John 2. You're talking about the end of John 1. Now, this is good. So what use are miracles? 
I'm going to suggest to you that miracles are useful in encouraging existing faith. Miracles are useful in encouraging existing faith. Because, okay, we'll do this. The center, so let's start actually in John 1. Let's start in John 1 with the prologue. The central point in the prologue is verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now keep your thumb there and go to the other end of the book, because John tells you why he wrote. And again, when authors tell you why they write things, it's really helpful to pay attention. And so in John 20, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is a book of signs. There's a lot of other signs, but I wrote these signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing of life in his name. Verse Chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I'll, I'll deal with Nathaniel in a second. Go to John 2, um, verse 11. He's just turned the water into grape juice. I mean, wine, sorry. Just turned the water into wine. Um, that's, sorry, that, that's just a dig at my old pastor. Sorry, sorry. I'm certain this is just water mixed 20 to 1 with wine. No, sorry. Um, oh, sorry, it's just fun. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And John told us he wrote a book of signs so that people would believe. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld his glory. So there's this, com- this, this confluence of seeing glory and believing, and this sign. Okay, so didn't that just contradict what I said? Here's a sign, and these people believed. I don't think that contradicts my point at all, because where do we find these people in chapter 1? Where does Jesus, in John's gospel, where do all of Jesus' disciples get gathered from? More specific, the planet Earth, yes. More specifically, more specifically, they're, they're hanging out with John the Baptist, Duncan John, right? Um, in other words, what we see in the gospel of, of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is Jesus plucking them out from society, but they eventually go and follow John the Baptist, and then he gathers them there. So in John's gospel in chapter 1, in no instance do we read about any of his disciples getting forgiven. I think the reason is there are already people of faith following John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet. Did you track what I'm saying? In other words, as we look at all the, the people who come after him in John 1, whether it's Peter or Andrew or Nathaniel or any of these people, they come to believe Jesus is the Christ, but they've already believed John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So for people who already have faith, I think signs and miracles can be wonderful things to strengthen and encourage their pre-existing faith. It can fan the flames of faith. I don't think what it can do is create faith. Yes, Dave? That's a great question. Let's go to John 4. So, very, very astute. Verse 7. 
chapter four. The woman from Samaria came. See, at least you're picking from John, which having taught through twice, I'm pretty, like, if you're asking me about Luke, which I'm only like a half a chapter ahead of where we are right now, it'd be a different matter, but we're in John, so I'm in... <laughs> no, these are, these are just fine, Dave. These are just fine. Um, <laughs> a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Very helpful to John to give us that piece of information. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. From where did you get your living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now, pause. That's, I'm assuming, what you're pointing to. Jesus evidences miraculous knowledge. Is that, is that your... No, no, no. What miracle did she witness? Things that he otherwise wouldn't be able to know. Okay. And I would say that that doesn't make her a believer right here. She recognizes, just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, you're, no one can work the signs you work unless God is with him. I mean, Nicodemus shows up acknowledging as much. Clearly, you're somebody special. Clearly, you're from God. You're doing something. But Jesus keeps going. She's dodging now. In other words, in response to that evidence of supernatural knowledge, she says, speaking of my five husbands, which mountain are we supposed to worship on? You notice how she's dodging? She's changing the topic. In other words, that comes out of left field. Sir, I believe you to be a prophet. Um, yeah, look, no, look at this. Jesus said, go call your husband. The woman said, I have no husband. He said to her, you're right, saying I have no husband. If you've had five husbands, the one you have now is not your husband, for what you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place to be worshipped. Speaking of five husbands, where should we worship? Yes, Dan, you were just... Yeah. No, no, it is. It is. You guys know the backstory of the Samaritans, right? They are the, the intermarried remnants of the ten tribes carried away by Shalmaneser V. And they only accepted the, uh, they have some sort of bastardized version of, of Judaism. They accepted the Mosaic law. But, but the big issue with the northern tribes is when, um, when which prophet is it that goes and speaks to Rehoboam? Is it Elijah? Anyway, anyway, when Rehoboam, when Jeroboam and Rehoboam 
Jeroboam is Solomon's son. He's the punk. He's the one who says, my little pinky is thicker than my father's loins. He whipped you with thorns. I'll whip you with scorpions. And the 10 northern tribes say later, and they go and break. Um, God sends a prophet to Jeroboam, Rehoboam, sorry, the leader of the north. He says, look, if you guys will just worship the Lord, I'll bless you. But don't lead the people away into idolatry. And Rehoboam says to himself, if I let the people worship the law as it's written, then every year, for three times a year, they're going to go down to Jerusalem. And over time, their loyalty will shift. So he makes an alternate location of worship, sets up a big um, brass bull on Mount Samaria. That's the term Samaritans. Um, I think he sets up a second one as well. I think he has two. And that's, that's where this whole debate over where the proper place of worship is centers from. So they recognize some lineage from Jacob, but they know they're not Jews. They know they're not Israel, but yet they recognize some descendants from Jacob, and they recognize something in Moses' writings as prophetic. So they've got some sort of hybrid version of Judaism that's mixed with some of the pagan stuff going on, which is the reason why the Jews despised the Samaritans, because they're the corrupted form of Judaism. You know, um, kind of like the way New Hampshire looks at Vermont. Um, but... Sorry, sorry, um, Dave. Are we, so anyway, back to your back to your statement. The woman, this this indication of mirac- of miraculous knowledge doesn't bring her to faith. It actually makes her run away. She she has to recognize Jesus is up to something. He's doing. The signs primarily gather crowds. The signs primarily gather attention. Hey, look over here. Just like in Acts two, when everyone's speaking in other languages, and everyone stops what they're doing and looks up to the rooftop. But it's Peter speaking in one language, Greek. That, evangelizes 3,000 people. So signs and miracles are great for like drawing a, drawing a crowd, getting people to pay attention, getting people to stop what they're doing and listen, which is what happens here. Whoa. And, and you know, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think that she didn't see a big miracle. She mostly heard this guy talk and deal with her. In other words, part the fact that in what Jesus is saying, which is the word of God, Jesus speaking is the word of God, right? So she's primarily having an encounter with the word of God. In that word, the word of God evidences that it knows things only God could know, but that's what happens all the time. And God sends prophets to the people. They evidence knowledge they could only have had supernaturally. So I wouldn't say that's a miracle as much as that's a characteristic of God's word. Um, frequently, according to 1 Corinthians 14, the secrets that their hearts will be exposed and so falling on their face, they will admit God is truly among you. It's supernatural. A piece, a piece of her encounter with the living word of God is knowledge he could only have if he was more than a man. Right? But but to say that that's the turning point for her faith, as opposed to all the other things Jesus said, I, I think is probably going a bit much. Um, it's, it's um, just keep, keep going. It's, it's what he says. So keep, keep going in John 4. Because um, it's not as though right after that she becomes a follower of Jesus. She actually, that actually initiates her moving away. Let's change topics. This is getting a little too close to home. The woman said to him, Sir, I see if you're a prophet. Uh, verse 20, our fathers worshipped... What? 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say it's in Jerusalem, the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Um, so she's, even though she just saw miraculous knowledge, she still doesn't know. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus... Okay. 
I'll answer your little question about Samaritanism and Judaism. The Samaritans got it wrong, the Jews got it right. Okay. That said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who speak to him, seek those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, "I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things." Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you am He." I would submit to you that it's that 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 speaking and that talking that convinces her. Yeah, Lee. Yeah. Yeah. She's reporting his speaking. Yes. So there's a sense in which, sure, God's word will reveal things. It's supernatural. How else could he know this? How else could he say this? No one ever taught like this one with authority. But I wouldn't say that's violating my notion that miracles don't create faith. Um, Linda. Yeah. Right. Well, no, and that's a big theme of John's gospel. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Right, 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 right. No, no, I mean, there's a sense to which reveal, no, no, certainly, anytime somebody sees the truth, a miracle has happened. When Jesus says, you'll do greater works than these, I think that's what he's talking about, the the veil being removed, um, people's hearts being opened, people's eyes being opened. So certainly, that is a greater miracle. Keep going in John, keep going in John 4 to make this point clear. So it's ironic, by the way, that the Jewish Messiah, you compare all four Gospels, the very first person Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Messiah is to a Samaritan five times married living with her boyfriend woman. Isn't that interesting? This is the earliest. I mean, because the Jews are telling him, tell us, who are you? Tell us, who are you? And he keeps speaking in code. I'm the son of man. You know, and then finally, oh, you mean that? Okay, yeah. Here, I speak to him, he. And then he has the high point, the entire high point of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel is at the end of four. The only unqualified success without any opposition, total success, is a Samaritan village in Sychar. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And they stayed with him two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We, again, notice the emphasis on hearing and words. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when, Jesus, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They had gone to the feast. Now we've got signs, signs and miracles. They've seen some miracles, and they welcomed him. So he came again to Galilee, came to Galilee, where he had done, where he had made the water wine. 
And at Capernaum, there's an official whose son was ill. This man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And I don't think he's saying that in a good sense. I think he's rebuking the people. So it's clearly in John's mind to rebuke a faith that is created and and requires faith to believe. Go, Go to John 6. He gets tons of people to follow him. They want to make him king after the miracle of the turning the, the, the bread and the, the multiplying of the bread and the fish. They want to make him king. Um, verse 15, perceiving that they are about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. And then he walks across the water. He goes to the other side of the lake. Verse 22, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat, went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Fancy meeting you here, Jesus. Fancy running into you again. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. There's a, there's a double entendre. What he's saying is you didn't get the significance of the signs. You didn't really see them. You want some more food. You want some more food. Because he's going to tell them the significance of the miracle was, I'm the bread come down from heaven. You didn't see that. You didn't get that. You didn't understand that. You just want another free meal. Um, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? Um, excuse me, yesterday... Yesterday, you saw me miraculously feed all you alls. What sign do you do? And then they've got a, in case Jesus is out of ideas of what signs to do, they got a suggestion for him. No, no, these people are absolutely brazenly bold in what they're, and stubborn. And they said to him, um, Verse 30, so they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint, there's an idea, you know. That was a sign that God gave to Moses. Um, Just in case you were wondering of what signs to do, that bread thing was pretty cool. Um, (laughs) Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread. From heaven to eat, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on describing how he's the bread of life. And if you jump ahead to the end of the chapter, just about every one of these thousands of people who would have appeared to have been zealous disciples and followers, when they got up, they walked miles Go find Jesus. Um, and uh, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. He's just taught them, You've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. Who can listen to it? 
Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples are grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've, again, notice the emphasis, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. That, we sing that song, Show Us Christ. That's where that bridge part comes from. Where else, shall, where else shall we go, Lord? Where else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Um, Peter's basically saying, I don't have a sausage of an idea what you're talking about with this eating flesh and drinking blood. I do know there's no other game in town, and I do know you're the Savior, so we're staying put. But we have no clue what you just said. <laughs> and the cool thing is, like, that is a good place to be. That's okay place. That is an okay place to be. Jesus does not rebuke that. And there were times, you know, I don't know what you're doing, Lord. I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm not moving. Okay, great. Wonderful. So, so I'm just saying, that entire chapter, Dave, you just saw thousands of people see a sign, get all excited, they follow Jesus, they clearly want to see another, do it again, do it again, do it again. And then they all go home, because he doesn't do it again. Yeah, yeah, it's in that context that John 6.44 is given, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him on the last day. So um, I, I'm just saying, I think there's a pretty clear theme in John's gospel at the insufficiency of miracles to create faith and a, a rebuke to those people who demand continued signs and miracles to continue to believe. Nicodemus, I mean, it starts as early as um, John 3. Nicodemus, Nick at night, right? Um, oh, yeah. Sure. Go to, go to John 3. I think this is a very, very, very poor chapter division. Whoever did the chapter divisions in like the Middle Ages got this one wrong. The chapter division, chapter 3 should really start at where, where 223 is. Um. 2.23 through 25 is the introduction and setup for Nick at Night, for Nicodemus. And if we read through, you'll see. In other words, he gives you the general theme. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. When he was in Jerusalem, people saw the signs he was doing. But he knew it was in man. There was a man in Nicodemus. He came and said, well, I've seen signs. You see how that sets up the Nicodemus encounter? But not only does it set up the Nicodemus encounter, it also sets up Jesus' response because at the end of two, they believe, and what you'd expect as a reader is, and Jesus would embrace them. Jesus would welcome them. They believe. Instead, Jesus does not entrust himself to them. He gives them the Heisman. What, ha what does Jesus say to Nicodemus' nice opening lines? Thank you, Nick. It's nice to feel appreciated. It's nice to know somebody's paying attention and, and, and keeping track of things. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know you're from a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You don't see anything, Nick. You haven't seen nothing. You're blind. 
Jesus does not welcome the one who's come because he saw miracles and signs. Now, the reality, I believe, is that Nicodemus is there on a sort of scouting mission for the Pharisees. We've already seen that happen a little earlier in John's Gospel. In John 1, um, verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the Jews and the priests and the Pharisees send these little scouting missions. They sent them to John the Baptist. Who are you? And here is a man come from the Pharisees, and he's speaking for a group of people. He's not, I know. He says, we know. This, this guy's representing the Pharisees. And he comes at night, I think, because the Pharisees haven't yet decided whether they're publicly going to back Jesus or not. And that explains why Jesus rebuffs him. If Nicodemus has come to size him up to see whether or not we'll check your messianic credentials and see whether or not you're going to get the Pharisees' backing. That fits in also perfectly with the end of two. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. I don't need the Pharisees' support for my candidacy. Not interested in it. So then Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one does the signs you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus basically fundamentally challenges Nicodemus's right and position to judge anything. You've come here to size me up. I could ask you, Nick, can you, would you even know truth if you saw it? You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And then he goes on to that whole discussion. So I think a consistent theme through John's gospel is the insufficiency, the weakness, and almost the contemptible nature of would-be faith generated by miracles. Yes, Dave? Time's up, so this needs to be the last thing. Yes, no, you, it's, but that's in John without the cutting off account as well. Go, go, go. Go to John 8, 17, 18. 18? 18. After the, after the prayer, yeah. And there's no, it was, there's eight, does John have the cutting off of the priest here or is that Luke? These are the things I always mess up. John does. But they fall down and worship before he cuts anyone's ear off. Verse, verse 4 and 5. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. What's entirely possible here is the Greek for I am he is ego eimi, which means it's entirely possible if Jesus is speaking Hebrew here, um, that he actually speaks the divine name, the tetragrammaton, um, I am. The I am name, and that would explain why the Jews, why the Jews fell down in reverence. Um, you got two possibilities here. Jesus says, "I am He," and the Jews all say to themselves, "Hey, now's a great time to fall down and honor God." Or He actually vocalizes the divine name, the Tetragrammaton Yahweh, and then in honor and reverence to that name, the Jews all fall down on their face. Because every time it's always in response to Him saying, "I am" or "I am He." Ego me could be translated "I am" or "I am He." Both would be valid translations. Um, I tend to think he's speaking the divine name, which is why the Jews all fall down, prostrate themselves. Um, a clear identification of him as Yahweh. This is a debatable passage. I think that's best what's going on. But that all happens before he cuts anyone's ear off. Um, so it's all in response to what he said. 
No one ever spoke like this man. We're not told if Jesus was tall, short, had a big nose, a small nose, whether he had smooth skin or rough skin. We don't know anything about him. We know he spoke like no one ever spoke. He taught like someone with authority. Um, The emphasis is on Jesus' words and his speech. And we are out of time. See you guys all next. We'll hit that next week. Okay, next week, The Unforgivable Sin. Okay, God bless.